Well, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Pastor Mike Curtis here at Powerline Community Church. Welcome to the message this morning. Now, you've probably noticed I'm dressed a little bit differently because one of my daughters got me a very special t-shirt. It is from the mini-series called The Chosen. Now, in the very beginning of every show, it's very cool. I like the music. And they have gray or, or what is it? Yeah, gray fish going around in a circle, but there are teal fish. And guess who those teal fish are? See, those teal fish are you and me. Those are the ones who are following Jesus. And sometimes you get to see some of those gray fish turn around, go the opposite way, just like the teal fish are. They become teal. So this is a special shirt for me. We really enjoyed that mini-series, The Chosen. But this, this T-shirt actually has quite a bit to do with what I'm going to be talking about today and following Jesus. But before we do that, I'd like to open in prayer. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, thank you. You are here with us this morning. We're excited to be gathered together to worship you and just the profound truths, God, of your faithfulness your unfailing love, your enduring pursuit of your people. And as we declare these truths, God, please encourage our heart as we follow you against the ways of this world, Lord, and it's not popular. But I just ask right now, as we dig into your word, would you open our hearts, open our eyes, let us behold the magnificence of who you are and the truths that you have for us this morning and encourage us, God. Would you do that? Thank you so much. Spirit of God, be our teacher and show us how we're to walk out these truths this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 13. Let me read it to you. I'm reading from the New International Version. I'm going to be reading chapter 13, verses 1, 1 through 23. Here we go. As he was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Jesus replied, Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pangs. You must be on your guard. Underline that phrase, my friends. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand 
Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to enter the house or take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord did not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Now, let me just be totally honest with you and give you a disclaimer at this point. This is a difficult passage. I'm not going to hoodwink you or anything. It's not just a difficult passage for you. It's a difficult passage for me and anyone who studies it. And sometimes we come to disagreement about passages like this. And you may find that some of the things I say you may disagree with. I'm just going to encourage you then dig in to the word. And I've had to ask myself as a pastor, why are there in so many places in the Bible difficult passages? They're hard to understand. Sometimes I walk away and I'll have to confess to you I don't understand them. Why is this? I'm going to give you two reasons and equip you with this so as we go through this, we're going to be able to dig deeper into the word. Number one, I think the reason why God allows difficult passages in the Bible, like this one, is because when we dig deeper, our goal is to understand it. And our problem is sometimes people in their digging into the word and understanding think they're the only ones who understand it. They're the ones who are right and everyone else is wrong. And they kind of throw aside humility and in their arrogance, they try to demonstrate so much of why they're right and everyone else is wrong. Now, there is a tr it is true that there is a right way to understand a passage. There's a right way to understand this passage. I'm not saying that I've got a corner market on that truth. And we all, including myself, have to approach it humbly. But the reason why we do it is because the more you dig into these difficult passages, and this is where I've discovered, is that it changes you. You see, our goal isn't to try and gain head knowledge to prove how right we are and others are wrong. It's so that we gain knowledge, so that we gain understanding so that we gain wisdom. And in that wisdom, that's what's going to change you. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the dividing sunder of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart. It's powerful, and it changes us. Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth will do what? It will set you free. And so this is why we dig into the word. Dig into it, church. Let's dig into this passage. And even beyond the sermon today, dig into it. Try to understand it and let it change you. There's another reason, though, why I think there's difficult passages. And that's because I think there's a greater goal beyond just understanding. And that is our ability, because we have the Spirit of God in us, our ability by that Spirit to love those in the body of Christ with whom we disagree. Instead of there being so much internal fighting, Jesus says that, you will, that people will know that you are Christians by what? How much you know? How divided you are? They'll know by the love they see in your life. 
And so I'm going to encourage you as we go through this, even though we may find ourselves on a different page, because it is a hard passage to understand, let's be unified, let's love one another, because that is the end result of what God is doing as he changes us. So I'm going to encourage you, study the Bible, dig into it, grow in humility, grow in love, and let the word of God change you, okay? So that's my disclaimer this morning. This is a tough passage. And I'm not claiming to have a perfect understanding of it. I'm not. But I want us to see some things in that, that I hope as we see them, as we understand them, and as we acquire wisdom, that we're going to be able to walk this passage out together. Amen? First thing I want us to do is I want us to go back to the very beginning. Jesus is in the temple. He's been teaching in the temple all week. (laughs) And he has been in the, the temple grounds looking around and He's pointing out these magnificent buildings. And the disciples are amazed because Herod had taken the destroyed temple as it was uh, destroyed back in 165 BC and they kind of rebuilt some of it. Herod elaborated on that, made it even more magnificent, added buildings. It was truly a wonder to see. And his disciples are in wonder looking at these magnificent buildings in this courtyard of the temple. Jesus says to him, Notice what he says. He says, here we go. Do you see all these great buildings? And then he says this, not one stone will be left upon another. These buildings that you see, they're going to be destroyed. That kind of put a bug in their ears, they say. And as they left the temple, went across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and sat down, four of his disciples came to him. And they're probably the four that were closest to him, Peter, James, John, and Andrew. And as they sat down, they said to him privately, they said, Jesus, help us understand what you were talking about. What what, what do you mean the the, the temple is going to be destroyed? And they word it this way. Listen closely to what Mark says their question is. Tell us when will these things happen? What are these things? The destruction of the temple. Of all of these buildings, these things, not one stone left upon another. I mean, church, think of this. The temple, isn't that where God dwelled? Isn't it God's temple, not just man's temple? Isn't that where God resided and we met with him to worship? This is holy. What do you mean it's going to be? So this is their question. Help us understand. When? Will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? So Mark focuses on the disciples' question strictly concerning the temple. Now, if we were to turn to Matthew, now Matthew says that their question was actually a little bit bigger. And that that Matthew adds that they said, What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, that question starts talking about when Jesus comes back and when the end of the age will be and the new age ushered in. But Mark doesn't focus on that. Mark focuses strictly on the destruction of the temple. So how do we think Jesus is going to answer that question? Mark spends a lot of time focusing on what Jesus taught concerning the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Matthew, because he adds more of what their question was about his coming and the end, 
Matthew spends quite a bit of time talking about when Jesus comes back and what it will look like and how we should therefore watch and pray. Mark, he only spends a little bit of time on that. So this morning, we're going to focus on the destruction of the temple and the end that was just 40 years after Jesus prophesied this. This actually is one of the most powerful prophecies that Jesus gave. It's so powerful that when liberals try to date the Gospels, they try to date them after 70 AD for this reason right here. Because this is a prediction of the temple's destruction, and the temple in Jerusalem were utterly destroyed. Not one stone was left on another in the temple mount. So strong is this prophecy's that the liberals cannot imagine that Jesus actually predicted this. But there are many reasons and many proofs for the Gospels being written before 70 AD and that this prophecy is valid. We actually come across the fulfillment of this in the words of Flavius Josephus. Flavius Josephus was a general in the army of the Jews, he, however, did not agree with the revolts that the zealot, the Jewish zealots, were leading at this time against the Roman Empire. It was creating quite a bit of stir, and the Romans in 66 AD approached Jerusalem, surrounded it, and under the, uh, the leadership of Vespasian, they began to launch an attack to quiet these revolts, this rebellion, and it took a very long time. After three years, Vespasian finds himself, after the, they, they call it the, the year of four emperors, he is the fourth emperor, and in 69 AD, he ascends the throne to become the emperor of Rome. He then sends his son, Titus, to Jerusalem to quiet this rebellion because it had tremendously escalated. And so he takes his troops and he assaults. And Flavius Josephus had been trying to convince the Jews, don't fight the Romans. They're going to completely destroy you. Josephus tells us that there were approximately uh, 1.2 or 1.1 million Jews in Jerusalem and surrounding Jerusalem at that time. In the last several months, starting with Passover to about August of 70 AD. Josephus tells us that Titus put earthen uh, ramps up against the wall to scale the wall. They were able to cut off all the supplies so that the people inside began to die of starvation. He tells us that 600,000 Jews died of starvation. The zealots kept trying to encourage the people to fight and stirring. there was a lot of factions amongst them, and it was difficult for anyone to lead this Jewish revolt. Titus began to seize hold of that, attacking from many sides. Going, there were three walls. He, he went through the first wall, the second wall, and as the Jews are closing in, they all went into the temple courtyard to be able to fend the rest of the city that way. Some went to the, the southern part of the city. It, and we are told that Titus said, look, do not destroy the temple. Do not, throw, do not set it on fire. But apparently, one of his men did. And the, the, the story is told also that the Jews were really the ones to burn the temple. So we're not exactly sure who did. 
but the temple burned. There was gold both on the inside paneling the walls and huge stores of gold and silver in the storerooms of the temple. If you were to go to uh, or, or research the archaeological discoveries of old Jerusalem of this time, they have discovered that truly not one stone was left upon another, and they speculate that apparently this gold and the silver had melted down into the cracks of these huge foundation stones and into the walls so that the Romans, in trying to get all of the gold, dug up, plied up, leveraged up all of the stones so that there was not one stone left upon another. Josephus tells us that at the end of the war, some were hiding in tunnels and discovered, and they were crucified. That approximately 95,000 were taken as slaves, about 30,000 were crucified, and about 1.1 million were killed. Jesus tells us that there is no distress in all the world, from the beginning to the end, like this. And if you were to read as what Jesus talks about this, he says, you know what? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, and there's been a lot of uh, speculation about what that could be. I think everybody just about has an opinion on that. It seems as if it may well have been the ensign that the Romans used, which would be a, a long stick with the eagle on top. And wherever that, that pole was brought, that ensign was brought, it was declared that land belonged to the Romans. And when people saw that outside the gates, many of the Christians realized this is what Jesus prophesied, and they fled the city. Many of them fled out of Judea, as Jesus said to do, and they fled across the Jordan to a region called Pella. And there's archaeological evidence to this effect, but they were saved. They followed the word of Jesus. But many of them, of course, did not, and over 1.1 million died. The abomination that causes desolation eventually was erected and set up in the temple grounds, and the city was completely destroyed. Bodies lined and stacked up in, in the streets. Blood truly, actually, literally flowed in the streets. There was so much death, so much killing. Jesus says that when you hear of these things, flee, and that's what they did. He says that this distress would be unequal. And I want you to imagine, as a Jew, this was the holy city. This was your life. This was what your religion was all about. It, truly, it was not. But this is what you stood for. And so consequently... They wanted to defend that homeland. They wanted to defend the city, defend the temple, and they were willing to die for this because they would never, ever want the Roman pagan gods to be erected or to be able to have the city declared a Roman city. And so they fought to the death for this. And Jesus tells us that there is no distress. The famine, the fire, the sword, the killing, the death, nothing like this equal. For the Jews, it was the end. And I want to look at this curious phrase, the end. We find it in Mark, we find it in two places. In Matthew, he adds one more. Let's quickly look at those three places where we find this phrase. The first one 
It's found in verse 7. Now listen to this. It says, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Now, since Jesus is answering the question about the destruction of the temple, it appears that the end, as it's used here, refers to that incident of when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. The end would not yet come. And so he uses the end to refer to 70 AD and the destruction of the temple. Look a little bit further down. He says right here in verse... 13, it says, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, he's not talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's talking about the end of one's life. And so the end can be used to refer to numerous different things, the, the end of the city, the end of uh, your life. Now, Matthew, he goes on and, and he uses the word, let me find it here in my notes, he finds it in, in he, he speaks of it in verse 14 of chapter 24, and he says it this way. He says, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That phrase, the end, now refers to the end of the age. Matthew includes it because that's what he wanted to include in his gospel because the disciples' question included that. What's the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so Matthew talks about that, whereas Mark doesn't do so much. Now, here's my point. Many times when we face an end, we need to realize that from our perspective, it feels like that's the end. Like, for example, when it comes to the end of your life, I'm going to suggest to you that that is not the end, but you are now about, as a Christian, you are about to receive the greatest promotion ever in your life, that you are now about to graduate into the heavens. You are about to now inherit the full inheritance that Christ has offered to you from the moment that you believed, and now in heaven, you get to enjoy that inheritance and the full redemption that Christ purchased for you. You see, that's not the end. That is really only a new beginning. Why? Because Jesus's plan, God's plan marches on. It goes past your death. It goes past the death of that loved one. And if they know Jesus, they too will have all of eternity to enjoy him. They get to enjoy that promotion, that graduation, whatever you want to call it. And so there, there's no end here. There's just a change. And they continue on in the marching forward of the inevitable plan of God. I want to ask you, what type of end have you experienced in your life? Can I be honest with you? My wife and I, over the years, have gotten into a few arguments. A few. And there have been times, just to be honest with you, in which I walked out of that argument and I felt like, that's it. That's the end. She's not going to want to live with me anymore. She's going to divorce me. She's going to have 
We're done. It's over. This is hopeless. I, I truly felt that way. Now, I knew that my wife probably would not do that because she's a godly woman, and I'm struggling at this moment, and I'm angry, and I'm disappointed, and I realize, and, and, and I'm just thinking there's no hope here. I have really blown it. I was at least humble enough to recognize when I blew it, okay? I've really blown it. She's not going to, this is too hard for her to forgive me. And, and you know what? That wasn't the end. I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for my wife's patience. But we can feel that way. You know, when you get fired, you can feel like, well, that's the end. You had put years and years into this business, into working for this employer, this boss, and you've been getting promotions, and then one day you get fired, and you're just thinking, that's it. That's the end of my job. That's the end of my career. Where am I going to go? I'm 50 years old, and now what? And it can feel like the end. I want to tell you, God has a plan. It is an inevitable plan because he, in his plan, is marching forward he has a purpose in your life. It is not the end. Even when you lose a loved one, it can feel like the end. It's so emotional. It hurts. It is not the end. You have come to a new chapter. And today Jesus is saying, let's turn the page. I want to leave you with three encouragements from the text here. Jesus recognizes the potential emotion of that moment. Well, it was more than a moment. It was three and a half years of attack and war with the Romans. But he realized when all those people one day would finally die. Loved ones, many of them, of course, even themselves. I can't imagine what it would be like to starve to death. There are some stories that were told about what people did to try and keep themselves alive that I will not get into. They're horrible stories. And I think Jesus wanted to take this moment to encourage his disciples. And he left them with three promises. I want us to look at those promises briefly, okay? The first one, the first one is found in verse 10. And I'm going to call this first encouragement, the unstoppable gospel. The unstoppable gospel. Do you see that in verse 10? It says, and the gospel must first be preached in all nations. All nations. Church, say that with me. All nations. That's right. You see, inherent in the gospel is both the power of that gospel. The gospel is the power of of God unto salvation. The gospel is not just something that we mentally assent to, that we try to understand. The gospel is power, and it changes us. As we apprehend this truth, God by his spirit comes in, washes away our sin, forgives them, changes us. You become a new creation. God says that Jesus by his blood has washed away your sins and redeemed you to be his very own. There is a change in your life. This is the power of the gospel. But the gospel is not just powerful, it has intent. Just like a locomotive. When you th- I want you right now, just picture a locomotive in your mind, okay? It's powerful. You can, you can see the, the, if it's a steam engine, you can see the steam coming out. You can, you can hear it as it's chugging. But it's not just powerful, 
Locomotives, trains always have a destination, right? Isn't, isn't that inherent in the very reason why they were created? They're going to take you from one place to another. So their destination is inherent in what they are. You see, the gospel has a destination. The Bible tells me that not only is it the power of God unto salvation, it says in Isaiah chapter 2, it says that all nations will stream into the kingdom of God. This is the unstoppable gospel. It is inevitable that we in, in, in this world, in human history, that the gospel will not just spread to all nations, but by the power of that gospel, all nations will be coming to Christ. Now, I'm not saying that every person in those nations will, but Jesus tells, and there's many, many passages, Old and New Testament, that talk about this inevitable purpose of God in the gospel. That's why I'm calling it the unstoppable gospel. When things seem like the end, when martyrs are burned at the stake, like Polycarp and the testimony that we can read about him, what a powerful testimony. He died in 155 A.D., an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is called. But when he died, was that it? No. See, the gospel has power and destiny. It is unstoppable. Its intent is inevitable. And it has been marching forward. It has never, ever, church, listen to me, never, ever been able to be stopped, no matter how hard the Christians throughout the world have been persecuted, and we live in a day in which it is Christians are probably persecuted more now than ever before in history, even during the time of John, even during the time of the other apostles. No other time in human history has there been more suffering and more deaths, more martyrdom for the kingdom of God. Let me tell you about the unstoppable gospel. In Don Richardson's book, Eternity in Their Hearts, I want to share a story with you. He interviews a woman by the name of Nelda. Her father and her grandfather were missionaries in Burma. Now, in their missionary work, they were experiencing an explosion of the gospel unprecedented in their day, truly, in which tens of thousands were coming to Christ. Never heard of something like this before. They were reaching the Lahu and the Lisu and the Karain. And today I want to talk to you about the Wa. And as he is interviewing this woman, his fa her father, Vincent, and her grandfather, William Marcus, reached these various people groups in Burma, the mountains of which extend into southwestern China and then south into Thailand. But he says that as he's interviewing, she, she told this story about the Wa when they first started coming to Christ. Her grandfather, William Marcus, was very much a part of that story. You see, the Wa were headhunters. They're about 100,000 strong. Now, it's not that the Wa were such terrible people, my goodness, headhunters, but they, the reason why they took heads like that is because they buried people's heads in the ground during harvest season, and they believed, since they worshipped demons, that these demons would bless their crops. So all the surrounding communities around the wall wanted to go on vacation during planting season. 
because that's when the headhunters went out. But unfortunately, that's when they had to plant their crops too. So the Wa were headhunters. And every now and then, every several generations, someone would rise up within their community, gather people around them, and they would preach against this. Literally. They would tell them to stop killing their neighbors. They would tell them to stop being headhunters. They would tell them to stop worshiping the demons. There was one, Puchan, in which he had a dream, he says. And in this dream, the one true God visited him and said, there is a white man with a lost book who is coming close to you. Welcome him and listen. A white man with a lost book. And so he gathered the people, his disciples around him, and Puchan told them, he said, look, I have a donkey here. It's saddled with supplies. I believe that we need to take this donkey and let, actually, the donkey was going to lead them, and this donkey was going to find this white man with the lost book and bring him back on that donkey to tell them about this lost book. I'm not making this story up. This type of story is actually embedded in many of these different cultures of the Lahu and the Lisu and the Wa, the Karain. And the story is told that when Puchan told his disciples this, he said, look, the donkey is going to be released. You follow him. And wherever he goes, that's where the white man with the lost book will be found. And his disciples, in all honesty, thought... Well, he's just going to go to the closest stream and drink, and that will be the end of that. Well, the donkey headed out. It went past stream after stream. And as the story is told, he went into the mountains. And in the mountains, he, he came into a compound and stopped right next to a well. And as the Wa looked down into the well, they discovered a man by the name of William Marcus. And this man came up. And he said, how may I help you? And they began to describe for him what Puchan had told them. And he looked at them and he said, I, I'm not able to go with you. I have over a thousand lahu coming to me every day, almost every day, wanting me to teach the Bible. So here's what I'm going to do. And so he gathered the wa tribesmen around him, and he began to teach them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many were being converted. They then took that message back to their people, and tens of thousands began to follow Jesus Christ. Eventually, about 10 years later, his son Vincent began to go to the tribe. He translated the New Testament into the Wa language, and the, the gospel just began, more and more began to explode on the scene. See, church, this is the unstoppable gospel. It has power, it has a destination, and the devil cannot stop it. This is the encouragement that Jesus gives them. It might feel like the end. 70 AD felt like the end. No, 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 my friends. There's a new chapter beginning about the inevitable gospel. The second thing that he wants to bring their attention to is found 
Let me give you the verse here. Here we go. Verse 11. He says, just say, you know, when you, let me back up. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time. For it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. I want to ask you. When you feel like you've totally blown it, when you feel like that God could never, ever use you again, I want you to remember this promise, that when God gives you an opportunity, I don't care how unworthy you feel, his promise is, I want to use you. I want to use you. If you are willing to look to him, he will never, ever pass up that opportunity to use you, no matter how you feel, no matter how unworthy you might see yourself as. God doesn't see you that way, and he will use you. The Spirit of God will speak through you. Now, I'm an introvert, so I look at this and say, wow, really? I remember many years ago, I really struggled with speaking in front of people. And, and yet, I loved telling people about Jesus. I was just a few years old in the Lord, and I loved telling them. And I said to myself, God, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. But I had such trouble communicating. And God had to challenge me and reassure me, Mike, whether you're an introvert or not, I can still speak through you. You know, then there are those who are extroverts. And they can just talk so much Sometimes they just share whatever's on their mind, and it's not always wise what they say, the first thing that comes out of their mouth. And so they have to speak. They have to not speak so much. Peter was one of these guys. You know what? He would just say whatever was on your mind. And he saw Jesus transfigured, and it was the most amazing thing he'd ever seen in his life. And he said, uh, Jesus, um, let's, let's, let's make a shrine for you, Moses and Elijah. And Jesus did one of these, oy vey. Really? Father. And Peter, Peter had to learn. And he was the one who denied Christ three times. He was the one, though, that also said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus began at that moment to talk about how he was going to be handed over to the chief priests and be persecuted and suffer many things and then be killed at the hands of the Jews. And Peter said, that will never happen. And Jesus looked at him and said, Satan, get behind me. Not everything that came out of that man's mouth was always wise. But let me tell you this, when the Spirit of God got a hold of him and filled him with the Spirit, and regularly filled him with the Spirit. Chapter 4, standing before the Sanhedrin. Those were the, those were the teachers of the law. They were the ones who knew the word of God. They were the ones who had spent their life studying. And they began to interrogate Peter concerning the healing of this lame man. And why are you doing it in Jesus' name? And scripture says in chapter 4, verse 8, and Peter filled with the Spirit said, you know, may that be what's on my tombstone one day. And Mike, filled with the Spirit, said, I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want to be able to live what Jesus is talking about here. Don't be afraid about what you're going to say. 
Peter didn't give thought about what he had said. Maybe just a little bit of fear. Oh, Lord, please don't let me say, don't, please don't let me say something stupid. Maybe that was one of his really quick prayers. I don't know. But at that moment, what he began to say changed people's lives. And he began to testify. It's not by my power. It is by the power of Jesus Christ. And that name, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. How would, you, how would you like to be in the Sanhedrin and hear someone say that to you? Jesus, the one we just crucified, there's salvation found in no other name? What? But full of boldness. And he spoke truth by the Spirit of God. My friends, God can use you because he has a plan. And that plan is not thwarted by some feeling like this is the end. The last encouragement that Jesus gives them is found in verse 13. All men will hate you. Woohoo! Yes! What a promise! Man, praise God, everyone's gonna hate me. <laughs> oh, Jesus, there's cer certainly there's gotta be a promise in here somewhere. All men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. We'll be saved. You know, it's, it is so easy in our day to, in trying to represent and live for Christ, not shine too brightly. Because if we do, I mean, in other lands, you could die. That may not happen, at least yet in America. But people will think that you're a lunatic. They'll think that you're anti-intellectual. They'll think that you are... Just this Jesus freak kook, why should we listen to you? And people just decide one day, you know what, I, I, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of how people view me. And so pastors, they stop talk, preaching about hell because hell is just not popular in our day. They stop preaching about Jesus being the only way, truth, and life. I mean, church, Jesus said that he was the only way to the Father. When he was speaking to a Samaritan woman in John 4, he didn't seek to appease what, what he was, appease the woman. She was a Samaritan. Samaritans took the Jewish religion and paganism and kind of brought them together to form Samaritanism and to form their religion. And this is what Jesus said to her. Now, he was very gracious as he spoke with her, and yet he called her out concerning her sin, and then he said this to her. He said, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, and we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. He pulled no punches. He spoke the truth. He was gracious, but he spoke the truth. And when you're sharing the gospel with a Muslim, be gracious with them. But don't be afraid to say to them, you Muslims worship what you do not know. But we Christians, we follow Jesus, and we know him. And he is the only way, truth, and life. And no one comes to the Father, the God of all creation, but through him. And so there is constantly in our day a temptation to pull back 
from speaking so boldly. I think there's also a temptation to compromise in the way we live. Because if you live too radically, it makes people feel uncomfortable. And when you live radically and you're following Jesus, people will tend to hate you. Of course, they don't say it to your face. They say it behind your back. Because that's just the way us Americans live, right? But Jesus is telling us, look, people are, people are going to hate you. And you're going to be forced, you're, you're going to feel forced into this mold patterned after the ways of this world, behaving like them and speaking like them. And he says, endure to the end, the end of your life. Hang in there. Do not compromise. I have this plan. It's an amazing plan. It's the plan of the Father. And I am now about, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm about to go to the cross. And through the cross and through the resurrection, I'm going to purchase you as my own. And I am going to make you a part of this inheritance, this amazing plan that God, the Father, has destined for you from all of eternity. Can you walk in it? And can you endure to the end? No matter what the world says about you, no matter how much they hate you, don't fit into their mold. Endure to the end. And he promises this, and you will be saved. Now, I don't think he necessarily meant saved out of the trouble, saved from martyrdom. I mean, what greater man in the early church was there than Polycarp? But he was burned at the stake. And in that steadfast devotion to Jesus Christ, Many came to Christ. The salvation that he is talking about is that salvation that we will experience one day when we are with the Father. That's not the end. That's a new chapter. That's a new adventure. And get a load of this. It will last through all eternity. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the destiny of the gospel. This is the purpose that God has for your life, to seek to reflect him and not compromise in any way, but reflect Christ and pursue him, endure to the end. And then what awaits us is this magnificent revelation of this incredible inheritance completely unfolded for us that lasts forever. To endure to the end. And you will be saved. I just want to ask you this morning, as you've read through this passage, as we've talked about it, do you feel like maybe right now in your life that you are coming to an end, an end of a relationship, a job? Maybe you're encountering a transition, and it's just plain scary. God is for you. He has a plan, and this Thing that you're feeling right now does not take him by surprise. Can you trust him? Can you see that he has awaiting for you a new chapter? Let's turn the page. Let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for your amazing goodness. Thank you for your love. You have not given up on us. And I just ask you, Lord, as you unfold our life as this magnificent drama of your grace and how you interact in our day-to-day -day life. I just ask you, Lord, help us trust you. Help us look to you in these moments in which we feel like it's the end. Show us your grace.
in those moments even more. Shine your light even greater then. And I just ask you, Father, whatever end that we are feeling like we're in right now, would you give us hope? Would you keep our eyes on Jesus? That we would endure to the end and shine Christ. That the gospel, as it goes out into all nations, would capture all of their hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.